Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 16 of Push Dose EMS brought to you by uh, the Office of Emergency Management. Uh, we welcome you again this month. Uh, continuing on our trauma theme, uh, just moving a little bit further down uh, the body today, looking at abdominal traumas and some of our LSIs. Uh, but before we get too deep into the topic, uh, introductions as usual and going down my list. Uh, I see System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Happy to be here. Uh, EMS Fellows, Dr. Brandon Drazic. Dr. Drazic, welcome. Happy to be here. Hope everyone's doing well. And Dr. Nico Rendovich. Dr. Rendovich, welcome. How you doing? Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Polter. Welcome, Dan. Hello. And Assistant Medical Director for Education, Dr. Matt Chin. Welcome, Dr. Chin. Hey, thanks for having me, Good. Excellent. Welcome, everybody. Before we get deep diving into the topic, uh, as usual, uh, I will turn it over to folks for some updates. So, Dan, anything from the office? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, the only question I've had coming across my desk a couple of times um, over the past few weeks here has been about the superglottic airways, King versus iGel, and which ones are allowed in the system. The answer is actually both are now approved devices within the system. So fire departments may feel free to order whatever device they, they choose to do so with. Um, if you would like additional training on the iGel, since that is the newer addition to the system, we are happy to uh, come out and provide some training. There's also the practical skills uh, reference sheet that you can refer to as well. So either one. Let us know if you have any questions. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. And from medical direction, Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Brief updates today uh, just regarding COVID. So as far as our disease burden in the community, um, it looks like we're fairly stable, maybe uptrending a little bit. Our cases continue to uh, go up, although our percent positivity stays relatively flat, high, but relatively flat around 9 or 10%. Uh, hospitalizations continue to increase, though we are seeing some signs of a slowing there. Uh, and unfortunately, we're at the point where deaths uh, continue to rise. We're at our highest number of deaths since back in February. Uh, it's about four deaths per day. So one person dying every six hours in Milwaukee County from COVID. So hopefully we can push those numbers down as well. Um, two other COVID-related updates. One is just a reminder, since we still have some folks out there who are unvaccinated, uh, in our departments, that the vaccine is the best way to protect you uh, and also protect the patients you care for from COVID. So remember, the vaccine gives you a three times less risk of getting COVID in the first place, a seven times less risk of getting symptoms with COVID, and most importantly, uh, about 25 times lower risk of being hospitalized or dying from COVID. So certainly seek out the vaccine. Uh, if you have questions, reach out to someone who got their vaccine, reach out to me. I'm happy to talk through it with you um, and, uh, and get vaccinated. Uh, and then lastly, just a reminder, we did send out our latest numbered notice. Uh, it's been several weeks at this point, but since some questions have arised, uh, the expectation is surgical mask or better for all patient encounters. And then if you are using a nebulizer, you should be wearing a N95 mask or better. So those are my updates for now, and I'll hand it back to you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Weston. Uh, all right, diving right into the topics today. Uh, it's going to be a slightly briefer podcast. We'll try out a shorter format uh, this time around. So I am going to hand the floor over to 
Dr. Drazic and uh, Dr. Rendovich to have a little discussion on abdominal trauma. Uh, sometimes our abdominal trauma patients, some of their uh, extent of their injuries are harder to observe and diagnose in the field, uh, while care is just as equally as important with anything else that we've talked about. Uh, so I'll let them dive right into it for us. So doctors, the floor is yours. And now a case. So here we have a 40-year-old female who got was an unrestrained driver at an MBC, and she was complaining primarily of abdominal pain. When the crews got to the scene, they noted a lot of moderate front-end damaged airbag deployment. And when they assessed the patient, they didn't see any signs of injury on their assessment. She was complaining primarily of 10 out of 10 abdominal pain. Uh, on their exam, documented beautifully, they said there was no pain increasing with palpation, no tenderness, no rigidity. This patient had an otherwise unremarkable primary as well as secondary exam. Their vital signs were unremarkable and they were brought to the trauma center where they were found to decompensate on route, had a, became hypotensive to a systolic of 60 over 26 on ED arrival. They had a positive fast exam and a CT which showed a left-sided pneumothorax as well as a very large liver laceration. And this patient ended up getting massive transfusion and brought to the OR pretty immediately. So today we're gonna go a little deeper into the management of abdominal and pelvic trauma. All right, welcome everyone. Uh, so in terms of abdominal and pelvic trauma, there are a number of things we need to note. There aren't as many interventions as we have for other areas, but we got to talk about it and know what we're looking at. So like any other trauma, you want to start with your ABCs, your airway, your breathing, your circulation, make sure you're not missing anything big on that patient. But the big thing about your abdominal and pelvic trauma is you're not going to know what you don't see. You have to expose that patient. If their shirt is still on, if their pants are still over their pelvis, you're not going to know what's underneath there. So first and foremost, we're going to go through a few of the things we might see, things we might look for. So Dr. Arendovich, what are some of those things we might be looking for, we might be uh, seeing on exam? Like Dr. Drazic said, you got to make sure to look. In these cases, you might see some bruising associated with this motor vehicle collision. We call some of these things seatbelt signs. I'm sure the majority of you have seen the evidence of seatbelt burns along the shoulders and along the uh, clavicle. And sometimes you might see bruising along the belly. This is signs that there might be an internal injury, and this usually helps uh, key out to uh, the hospitals the extent of an injury. You might see something fancy called a gray Turner sign, which is a fancy way of saying that there is some flank bruising, which can be signs of a retroperitoneal injury, which is a fancy way of saying the organs that are kind of hidden within some of the tissues of the back. A Cullen sign, which is a fancy way of saying bruising around the belly button, and it's traditionally been associated with pancreatitis, but can also be associated with aortic injuries and other blunt intra-abdominal injuries. And we bring these things up because though they might not be seen in your trauma triage guidelines, this might help you change your decision and where you're going to transport these people to. All right, everyone. So there are some fancy names there, a bunch of different things. But truth be told, what you need to remember is what you were trained from the very beginning. This is your DCAP BTLS, right? You're going to recognize these things. You don't need to worry about these fancy names if you don't want to, unless you want to go in a deeper dive. But the big thing is you got to look, you got to look through the abdomen, back, the flanks, the pelvis, and see if there is injury there. Use your decal, decap BTLS, which you know how to do. 
These things can be pretty apparent sometimes, and you'll notice it immediately and don't ever let them distract you. Sometimes you'll see what's called an evisceration injury, which is essentially doctors speak for organs that were in the inside are now on the outside. In these cases, you just kind of cover it up and you move them to the right area they need to. All right, so there are a lot of things in the belly and in the pelvis. And really on scene, how much do we need to know about what's in there? Well, you know, some of you want maybe a slightly deep, deeper dive, but we will just uh, take a very uh, superficial deep look into what is going to be in there. The first thing we kind of think of, you know, that, and again, all of these injuries depend on the difference between whether you have a blunt injury or a penetrating injury. But the first thing we think about is those solid organs. What are those, Dr. Arendovich? So these are, of course, the, the sponge and the liver of the left, which we call our spleen, which helps fight infections, our kidneys, which are useful in making urine, and our pancreas, which does a lot of things for us, none of which I'm going to touch on here but when irritated causes severe, severe pain. And injury at any of these organs typically leads to a lot of internal bleeding. So if we're worrying about bleeding for the solid organs, there are other things. We know there's bowel in there, there's bladder. What are we worrying about in terms of the bowel and the bladder and how might that differ between those solid organs? Well, you see, inside those organs has a lot of stuff we would not like anywhere else in our body, most notably poop and pee. Whenever these things get ruptured, they're a little bit harder to tell when it happens, and it takes a lot longer for these patients to get symptomatic, but when they do, they end up becoming pretty septic. So infections, huh? So it's not good to have those uh, bowels opened to the rest of your abdomen. Poop in the not poop hole is not a good place to have poop. All right. So those are our organs. We, of course, know there are also bones there. Uh, what do we think about in terms of bone, bony injury in the abdomen and pelvis? Two things that we really get worried about, of course, are the spine. So in the lower part of the spine, there's still a bunch of nerves that go through there. Those things getting injured can lead to some neurologic deficits, which is important why we look into our main primary exam and looking for neurodeficits. And the other aspect is pelvic trauma. In these cases, when we have open pelvic fractures or significant pain with the pelvis, we can have a lot of bleeding in there. And we call these the open book or closed book fractures that sometimes require a pelvic binder. All right. So our solid organs bleed. Our hollow organs in the, in the, in the belly get us infected. The bones also bleed. They cause a lot of pain. And then there's something else that's pretty big in there. What is that? Oh, yeah. There's, a, there's an aorta. Uh, typically, when this gets nicked, particularly in penetrating trauma and very, very rarely in blunt trauma, you tend to bleed and bleed to death in these cases. So we have our injuries. Any of those things can get injured in cases of abdominal trauma. They are hard to see, right? This is why on scene, you're not gonna be able to see the inside of the belly. Um, you know, but we think first and foremost, what can we do? A, of course, like we mentioned, the first and foremost thing is to identify the mechanism of, of, of indis, in, injury and identify if we see anything externally that might correlate with those internal injuries. What do we do? Are there, is there much we can do in terms of our life-saving interventions in the field? Well, this is a really hard one because there's not a lot of life-saving interventions we can do in the field. Shoot, even in the emergency department, it's very difficult for us to manage a lot of these things despite having a few other tools. Most of these issues actually have to be managed by surgeons or other inter interventionalists. The only thing that we can consider in these cases from a pre-hospital setting is the placement of a pelvic binder in the consideration of an open book pelvic fracture. Now, this is why it's important that we get those good exams and making sure the receiving team knows your primary concern. 
in the pre-hospital setting, you guys really set the diagnostic momentum. There's a lot of things that are going to get rechecked, but having an idea of what you guys were concerned about, the scene that you saw, really helps play a role into our management. Anything that you see exposed, such as exposed organs or evisceration, as we talked about, you can put a wet or moist piece of gauze on there. No need to push it back in. But the biggest thing you can do in the pre-hospital setting is provide those stability. We used to talk historically about the golden hour of trauma. And then for you guys, we like to call this the platinum 10 minutes of the initial ass assessment. All right. So we have our patient. Our patient's in front of us. Our patient might have some signs of intra-abdominal trauma, such as bruising on the abdomen somewhere. Maybe they have a pelvis instability. Maybe they don't. But we've identified our injury. We've gone through our primary survey and our secondary survey. We recognize our patient in front of us is hypotensive. There's nothing else. There's no major injuries. There's no bleeding from an extremity. There's nothing to tourniquet. We're thinking because the patient has a lot of abdominal pain, something is going on in there. What do we do about this low blood pressure? Now, I want to take a moment to think back of how the old school trauma management's been done by some of the giants that we sat on the shoulders of historically. It used to involve pretty aggressive fluid administration. They'd give these people two liters of fluid as fast as possible to restore blood volume and kind of maintain tissue perfusion. Shoot, I can say about five years ago when I took my first ATLS course, this was a primary thing that we ran into. But the fact is, as time goes on and we try to change our trauma managements, they realize that the higher the pressure in your vessels, the harder it is for it to stop bleeding. Essentially, when you start to give these large amounts of fluid, it starts to push whatever clot out that's trying to form. And consequently, the bleeding is going to start to restart. In a more technical term, the hypotension that that person is having is helping to facilitate their coagulation. This is especially true in trauma patients who have active bleeding in a non-controllable area, such as those that we'd see in the belly. So what I'm hearing here is we've got a pump. That's the heart. We've got the blood vessels, those tubes. And if there's some injury, if those tubes are leaking, if we correct that and make it too high, we're going to bleed more. We're going to leak more. Is that right, Dr. Randovich? That sounds accurate. That is the principle of what we like to call permissive hypotension. The other thing that we can really consider in these cases is what happens when we start to give too much fluid resuscitation outside of the aspect of trying to break apart a clot that's forming. This brings us into what we call the triad of death. Uh, with aggressive fluid administration. So some of you might've heard of this before, but the triangle that is associated here is acidosis, coagulopathy, and hypothermia. Quickly getting into these acidosis, if you remember high school chemistry is a low pH. And the saline that we administer in these is actually mildly acidic. So when we give these large doses of fluids, it can actually increase the acidosis of the blood. Coagulopathy is essentially how well our blood is at making clots. And when we give large amounts of fluid in something that's currently missing, we actually dilute our blood products that are present and we can actually worsen coagulopathy. And that last part of hypothermia, when you have people that are cold, it's a lot harder to form a clot. And since the fluids tend to be a little bit cooler, they can actually worsen the hypothermia and make things a little bit worse. So over-aggressive fluid resuscitation can actually cause a lot of downstream effects here. All right, Dr. Arendovich, lots of fancy words there. Tell it to me straight. I'm in the field. I've got a patient, maybe belly trauma. I want to know what am I going to do? I have some interventions there. I've got some you know, fluid that I could give them. What do I want to do? What should that blood pressure be? Well, the blood pressure, which we should be shooting for is... That makes sense to everyone? Everyone able to hear that one? No? All right. The hard part is there's not a really good consensus on what 
permissive hypotension is. We don't exactly have a set goal for it. You know, a systolic blood pressure of 90 seems appropriate enough, but realistically, this should be guided on the patient's mental status. If this person looks like they're falling apart and hypotensive and they're responding less to you, gentle fluid resuscitation, small boluses here and there to try to increase this person's uh, mental status seem very appropriate. So we've covered a little bit about why we want to do this. You know, if we have leaky pipes, we don't want to put too much pressure in them to leak more. The other consideration there is that uh, if these patients are losing blood, really maybe the thing they need is blood and most of us cannot do that in the field. What other considerations might, might we have? What, what may we do in other circumstances that might make us think, okay, well, maybe we should do something different with the blood pressure goal. Well, the biggest thing and the only real contraindication that they found towards permissive hypotension is actually related to any sort of head injury. So people that have traumatic brain injuries that might be bleeding inside their head that show heavy signs of head trauma and might be less responsive than you'd expect, you should not use permissive hypotensive in these permissive hypotension in these cases, particularly because what your goal here is to try to maintain that cerebral perfusion. If you remember what we talked about Last week, when we talked about everything being essentially a compartment, the head is also a compartment. As blood starts to pool inside the head, it doesn't have a place to go, and it'll start to block off some of the blood flowing to the brain, making it worse. These people can essentially have a stroke. So we try to amp up these people's blood pressure in order to make sure that they have adequate blood flow from there to their brain so that they're able to maintain good perfusion to their brain. All right, so here's where we are. We have our patient. We're suspecting abdominal trauma. We've done a thorough exam, including looking for a DCAP BTLS and making sure our pelvis is stable. We're treating with a permissive hypotension goal, you know, but the other thing that I'm thinking here is this patient who has a low blood pressure after trauma needs to get to a trauma center and needs to get to a trauma center fast. So we're going to be transporting. We're going to be um, getting them to our level one center. What's going to happen then, Dr. Venevich? Well, first of all, you guys are going to give that wonderful DMIST handoff, which helps, you know, limit any errors in handoff and limits the amount of extra talk that might be going on that might not be as important. You'll notice in these cases, there'll be surgeons present and residents present, and they're going to repeat the ABCs. They'll take into account the things that you had mentioned to them in your sign out and see if there's any been any or see if there has been any major changes associated with it. Oftentimes, especially with a lot of these blunt traumas, you'll hear about this FAST exam. I know I mentioned it earlier here. For anyone that's not aware, this is the Focused Abdominal Sonographic Trauma Exam. Essentially, what they'll do is they'll take a ultrasound probe to the belly and start to look if there's anything that looks like free fluid. The reason they do this is it helps with disposition of the patient because if they see a lot of free fluid and they see a person whose blood pressure is not good, it tells us there's a good chance that this person needs to go to the OR right now. And so the surgeons will go in and try to find out exactly what might be bleeding. You'll also notice during this time period that they'll start to move towards early blood products. So no longer are we giving large doses of fluid. We're trying to return the thing that the patient is currently missing. So these people might get uh, packed red blood cells. In some places, they're starting whole blood transfusion. And if they're able to get some sort of stability, they'll often get CT scans to give the idea, a mapping of what might be injured. In these cases, uh, you might notice that there might be a liver injury or a splenic injury or a pelvic injury with a bleeding vessel that sometimes in the OR isn't necessary, and they'll send people to interventional radiologists that'll essentially block off these small bleeders. Now, why don't you give us a final recap here? All right, our final recap. 
We've done a great job with this patient. We've arrived on scene. We've done our ABCs, our primary survey of trauma, and we are, or we are suspecting intra-abdominal injury. We know where that is coming from. Could be a solid organ, the hollow viscous, those uh, bowel bladder injuries, the bones, or that big blood vessel, the abdominal aorta. We know that uh, we're going to manage a pelvis that needs a uh, pelvic binder if we need to do that. But other than that, we're going to think about controlling our blood pressure. We're going to give that hypo uh, permissive hypotension, maybe with a systolic blood pressure around 90, but we're going to titrate our fluids to see if we can increase the patient's mental status. Um, and we're going to get that patient transported to the hospital so they can get into the belly and address what's going on there. That's what we've got for you today. Thank you uh, for uh, being here with us. This is Dr. Brandon Dražić And Dr. Nico Arendovich. This is uh, both of your EMS fellows signing off, telling you to be safe out there. And thank you for all you- Max, thanks so much. Uh, some really good information there. Uh, maybe not as flashy as shoving needles into chests or cutting holes into tracheas, uh, but certainly just as critical uh, for our assessment and care for our patients in the field. And so I thank you for that uh, great presentation. Uh, and that, with that, that rounds out our show for this month. Uh, I appreciate everybody stopping by. Uh, one friendly reminder uh, as we sign off, uh, our GAPS, our EMS uh, Guidelines and Policy Subcommittee, uh, is kicking off their uh, work on updating the uh, patient care guidelines for around the county. If there's anybody still out there that is interested in participating, having their voice heard, uh, please feel free to reach out either to the quality email or education email, and we can get you involved with that as well. Uh, so I thank everybody for taking the time out to listen. I thank everybody for taking the time to present with us today, and we'll see you all next month.